0: You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Heavenly Father, we have gathered here at the Michigan Conference Camp Meeting, and Lord, we are just thrilled to be able to be here, and as we spend time in this session... Our hope and our prayer is that You would teach us something, that it would not merely just be a file that we put in our brain somewhere, but rather, Lord, we would implement these things and apply them practically. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So as we begin our seminar, I will want to just clarify that word evangelism. When I use the word evangelism, typically what most people will think of, if I say evangelism, most people will think of one of two things. A person or an event. So I say evangelism, and the picture that comes to mind for most people, or for many people, is Mark Finley, Sean Boonstra, Doug Batchelor, so on and so forth. Or we think of an event. Five weeks in a hall somewhere doing a meeting. When we talk about the word evangelism and understand evangelism in its truest sense, evangelism is the proclamation of the good news of victory. And when I use the word evangelism, I want it to be understood, that I'm using it in its broadest sense. Here's what I mean by that. Are the pathfinders evangelistic? Let me me clarify. Everybody said yes, and that's a good answer. Let me just add a clarifier to that. It should be. If it's not, then we really need to begin to examine and ask some questions. And when I use the word evangelistic, I don't necessarily mean that we are recruiting outside children to come into our Pathfinder Club, which I think is a good thing, but even for our own young people, it is evangelistic in nature. Teaching them how to be a good citizen of heaven and a good citizen on this earth. Is Sabbath school evangelistic? Both the children's and the adult divisions. And again, my answer is, it should be. If it's not, then we need to ask some very serious questions. There have been a number of different studies, and I will speak specifically to young people right now. There have been a number of different studies, both by Barna and then Answers in Genesis, which is the group that built the Creation Museum Noah's, uh, and the replication of Noah's Ark down in Kentucky. And this is what they have found, that if we do not have young people that are fully committed by the fifth or sixth grade, then we have lost them. And how that then is analogized is that, think about cradle roll Sabbath school and how we depict the flood story, for example. How is the flood story normally depicted? There's a boat with a bunch of animals with all their heads stuck out of the boat all jammed in there. And what are we when we use those pictures? And I'm not being critical, I'm being real with you now. What are we doing at the earliest age when we do that and we present that? We are presenting the story of the flood as a fairy tale and implanting that in the mind of a young child That this is not a true event that happened in history that teaches us a lesson about the love of God, but rather we're teaching it as some fictitious event that's like the rest of the cartoons that exist in the secular society. And let me tell you a brief story of why that's so dangerous. In 2012, uh, if you recall, uh, the big news was the doomsday prophecy of the Mayan tablets. Do you all remember that in 2012? uh, These Mayan disks, as they had been interpreted, uh, people believed that the Mayans had predicted the end of the world because the disk, which had the calendar, ended in 2012. you all recall that? Okay. I have to be careful. In these days and days, I'll have audiences and I'll start talking and I'll talk about my... 1982 Chevy Chevette, and, and I look out, and, and all these blank stares at me, and I realize that everyone that I'm speaking to uh, was not alive in 1982, and that makes me feel very old. Um, and I'm not that old, but, and in case you're wondering, I'm 47, because I don't want you to be thinking about that during the whole seminar. So in 2012, I went to Illinois State University. I had been invited by the Adventist Christian Fellowship to come and do some presentations on the 2012 Mayan Doomsday Prophecy. And so I went there and my expectation was, is I was going to be speaking to a group of Adventist students and their Christian friends that they invited, And on opening night, to my utter shock, half of the congregation that evening was from the secular and philosophy club on campus. Needless to say, that night I had to do a lot of shifting of my presentation. I'm telling you this story because there I met a young man by the name of Josh. I'll never forget his name. Josh grew up in a fundamentalist Baptist home. He was homeschooled through every single grade. And then he went to university. And when he went to university, in his first philosophy class, he gave up his faith and hook, line, and sinker bought into Secular philosophy. And now he was leading the secular and philosophy club on the campus of Illinois State University. Friends, we need to be educating our young people and preparing them for a world that no longer fundamentally believes that the Bible is the basis of moral and right living. We can use technical names like apologetics, whatever you want to use so sabbath school has an evangelistic aspect to it to help our young people have a real experience with Jesus and become committed followers of him just to finish that story because I know some of you are wondering well so what happened at illinois state university on that opening night at the end of our of my presentation I stood and these Secular and Philosophy Club members all came. And we stood in a circle and they are peppering me with questions. I was praying the whole time because I knew it was likely that all of those young people were vastly smarter than I was. And we were talking and talking and finally, and we stood there for three hours talking, not because I was lecturing, I stood there for three hours because they just kept asking questions. Finally, the last question of the night is What's what's different about you? And I said, Well, that's an interesting kind of question, but what do you mean by that? They said, We go to Christian events on this campus all the time. And every other group kicks us out and doesn't allow us to stay. Why did you allow us to stay? And I was praying, folks, I was praying. Lord, help me to say something that means something. And this is what the Lord gave me. I simply said, "I said," and I can't remember the young man's name at that that young man's name, and I said, you know, young man, here is what I would hope. I respect what you think and what you believe. And I would hope in the same way you would respect what I think and believe. And that we could have a discussion that is a discussion that is a courteous and kind discussion, because at the end of the day, I think all of us have the same goal. We want to know what the truth is. And I let that sit. That night, I knew I was only going to have the opportunity to address these young people one more time. And so I was praying, Lord, what what do I do? And I knew that it was very likely I would never see these young people ever again. And so I came under conviction. Isaiah, the 46th chapter, one of the most exclusive statements of the entirety of the Bible. Isaiah, chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. This is what the Bible says. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. How is it that we know that He is God and there is no other? How do we know that He is God and there is none like Him? Verse 10 declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. How do we know that God is who God says He is? Prophecy. I came under deep conviction that with these young people, I really had one opportunity to see them, and so I needed to throw as much at them as I possibly could, and so I changed my entire presentation. Things that we don't normally cover in an evangelistic series, until later on, I knew I had to throw it all out there, because that's... I just felt this impression. I, I, let me be very, very clear. It wasn't about what I wanted to do. The Lord laid that heavy on my heart. And so I threw every prophecy bomb that I could throw. Isaiah 45 and the prediction of Cyrus coming into Babylon, knowing him by name before he was even born. Daniel chapter 9 and the prediction of the coming Messiah. And the exact time in which he would be baptized, putting it all out there. And at the end of that meeting, these, and by the way, and that night, it wasn't just half the secular and philosophy club that came, the whole club came. And afterwards, it was the same thing questions after questions. And the Lord was just, I was praying, because folks, we were going to find ourselves many times in situations where we don't know what to say. And too often when we talk about evangelism and Bible study, we get really, really scared because we're like, what if I don't know what to say? The Bible is clear that in those times of needs, God will give us what we need to say. Too often we get scared in evangelism and church growth. What happens if somebody comes to our church that's really difficult and we don't know what to do with them? and we want to answer all the questions before there's even a question to be answered. God just wants to reach society, and so I'm working with these young people who, again, I knew. I knew they were all much more well-read than me, and I knew that they knew more than I did about these things. We're talking, and these young people are talking about the concept of hell. These secular philosophy, they know because they know what the origins Of the general Christian populace is about hellfire. And I'm able to talk to them in a very blank, very point-blank way and say, Well, I mean, you know, you I mean, you all know, I mean, because you've read much more in this area than I have, you know what the origins of what Christians say about hellfire is. And they're looking at me like I'm crazy. And I say, we know that it comes from Greek mythology and secular philosophy. The Bible doesn't teach such a thing about hellfire. The Bible teaches that God, yes, needs to bring an end to sin, but he does so in a, while the Bible calls it his strange act, a strange act, God does it in a merciful way, not an ever burning, tormenting way, as is outlined in some of the annals of Greek and Roman mythology, and they're just shaking their head because they know. They know these things. But the key moment, there were two key moments. Two young people had me cornered and they were just peppering me. And they're asking me why I believe the Bible. Why I believe the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? And finally I say, because at the end of the day, I take the evidence. And with that evidence, by faith, I believe that the Bible is true. And they said, we knew it. It's just faith. It's just faith. And I'm praying and I'm saying, Lord, don't let these guys get away with this. And this is then what the Lord gave to me. And I looked at those two young men and I said to them, I said, I said, now you wouldn't call it faith. But it's in the same way that you believe all these books that you're reading were written by the actual people that say they wrote them. You weren't there to know that Pythagoras wrote that book. You weren't there to know that Strabo wrote that book. You weren't there for Socrates or Plato. You don't know that they actually wrote them. So by faith, you accept that they're actually the ones that wrote these materials. And they looked at me and they were upset. They said, but we wouldn't call it faith. I said, I know, that's why I told you you wouldn't call it faith. But were you there to know that they wrote these? But yet you believe they did and young people let's if we base what we believe on evidence there are 25,000 manuscripts of the bible in existence the number of manuscripts to the writing that uh, that attest to the writings of plato are a handful so i guess it comes down to what evidence do you find more substantial and for me I find the evidence of the veracity of the Bible to be vastly more substantial. And then the last key moment is as we were closing out that young man Josh, the fundamentalist Baptist kid, homeschooled through grade all grades through 12th, now a freshman at Illinois State University and had given up his belief and had become An agnostic. He said this to me. He picked up a book and he said, Pastor, which was an interesting thing. Even these young, secular, philosophy made uh, individuals all referred to me as Pastor. It was kind of a fascinating thing. And if there are pastors here, by the way, it speaks to the reality that when we go to become a pastor, we never go to pastor a church, we go to pastor a community. It's a drastic transformation of our mind. For those of you that are not pastors and you are members, something we have to remember is pastors are called to pastor a community, not just the church. Josh picked up this book and he said, Pastor, this is what we've been studying over the course of the last several months. I don't remember what the book was. He just showed it to me and I some philosophy book. And I said, oh, that's, that's interesting. He said, we're going to not be studying this book anymore for a while, though. I said, really? What are you going to study? He picked up a Bible. And he says, we're going to study this book. Because we want to prove you wrong. And all I said was, I said, that's good, Josh. So if you want to remember some young man named Josh, I don't know where he is. I don't know what's become of Him. But here's what I do know. The Bible says His Word will never return to Him void. And I fully expect that we will see some of these secular and philosophy club members on the Sea of Glass someday. When we talk about the word evangelism, I speak of it in the broadest sense. And if, if we follow the model of Jesus, and we love people with no strings attached. Because too often we talk about evangelism. We talk about it in the context of a model that is really a model equated with bait and switch. That's not the call of Jesus. The call of Jesus is I help somebody overcome smoking because I genuinely want them to overcome smoking. But I also know That all the techniques that I give them in overcoming smoking, soaking in a warm bath, drinking orange juice instead of their coffee, drinking water instead of their coffee, all of this and that and everything else to help them overcome, at the end of the day, I know that the ultimate victory for that individual who is smoking comes in Jesus Christ. So we have a responsibility at some point to identify Jesus as the source of victory. But Ellen White uses this phrase, disinterested benevolence. We love people because we love people. Not because they'll become a tithe-paying member of our church. And that's the transformation that we need. Because if we're in for the long game, what does it matter if somebody, sometimes, and I hear this often, and I'm kind of giving you this big preface to evangelism and church growth because I think it's important. Because here's what I hear all around the world. Evangelism doesn't work anymore. Well, that's what we're going to talk about. But folks, I want us to think about what we say when we say those things. We expect someone to dramatically change their life over the course of five weeks. Change the day they worship, change what they eat, change what they wear, change how they think. And at the end of that, if that doesn't happen, we're like, ah, you see, it doesn't work. But when we understand evangelism in its broadest sense, it's not about five weeks. It's about the life cycle of the church. In Calgary, Alberta in 2016, I told you about Calgary, Alberta. Less than 50% of people claim Christianity in Calgary, Alberta. In the first time in my experience in North American evangelism, our opening night was the lowest night of our attendance. We had a 1,000 people opening night. The second weekend, we had 1,150. The third weekend, we had 1,250. The last weekend, we had 1,600 people show up. We had to shut the doors and lock the doors because we were exceeding the maximum capacity of the facility we were in, and we had to send them to the local church where we live-streamed it in. And this is not a testament to me as some great evangelist. This is a testament to the power of God working when we understand in its broadest sense evangelism and that it's not just about a five-week meeting. It's not just about a four-week meeting or a two-week meeting or a one-week one-week meeting, but rather it is about a life dedicated to God and reaching people with the good news of victory in Jesus Christ. And what happened in that meeting, and this was a citywide meeting, 14 churches in the city of Calgary, 1.2 million people. We spent significant amount of money in that city. And at the end of the series of four weeks, we baptized 47 people, to which we can say amen. However, if you would have taken that 47 and compared it to how much money we spent, people would be like, that's kind of disappointing. But we, from the very beginning, talked about, This is God's meeting and this is God's church. And so we're going to let God do what he needs to do. And what happened over the course of the next 12 months? They baptized another 100 people as a direct result of the emphasis we placed in Calgary over the course of that year. So there's 150 people baptized. And now those numbers start making sense. And here's the beauty of that. We went back a year later. 98% of the people we baptized, still faithful members. We went back two years later, 98% of the people, still faithful and attending church. Three years later, 98% of them are still there. Because when we allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of the Holy Spirit, and we don't try to twist people's arms, it's an amazing thing how God changes people. And I could tell you story after story, but I'll tell you one last story and then we'll get into the presentation. Ricky. Ricky Hayes. I'll never forget the guy as long as I live. He was there opening night of our series of meetings. He had befriended some Adventists and had kind of sporadically attended church. Ricky was a very flamboyant man. And he dressed that way. Ricky was pierced in about every place that you could pierce. And before the meetings, because of the smell that was emanating from Ricky, it was quite clear that he had partaken of some alcohol and smoked. I came to find out later that Ricky was addicted to crack as well. And I saw him that opening night, and you know what I thought? Shame on me, but you know what I thought? He won't be back. Boy, was I wrong. Ricky came back the second night. Ricky came back the third night. Ricky would always come up to me and say, Pastor, thank you so much. And he would hug me. Kind of like uncomfortable, you know? (laughs) He just kept coming. And then, in the midst of our series where we start talking about some more difficult things, we offer an addiction class. I understand that some of you may be addicted to various things and God is wanting you to overcome and so we offer this addictions class. And guess who came? Ricky came. And God starts doing amazing things in this man's life. He drops the smoking. He drops the drinking. And folks, miraculously, God takes away His desire for crack. If you know anything about crack, It is It is almost impossible to overcome this. And God starts delivering this man. And listen to this. Uh, The woman that was the pastor of the church where Ricky was attending on uh, sporadic occasions. Ricky comes up to her. And I told you, Ricky Ricky has all kinds of piercings and jewelry and all kinds of stuff. And Ricky, Ricky says to the pastor, he says, I had a dream last night. Okay? God spoke to me. Really? And this is what God said to me. He said, Ricky, you need to take off all your bling. Blank phrase term for all of his jewelry. And then this is what he asks. Do you think that was really God that told me that? Next day, Ricky shows up. All of it gone. All of it gone. You see, when we allow the Holy Spirit to do the work of the Holy Spirit, God changes people dramatically. I had to learn early in my ministry, I'm not the Holy Spirit. And even if I thought I was, I'm not good at what He does. Everybody with me? Alright. So we've given kind of the the, the 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 preface of everything here. And let's get right into... We are facing a huge challenge when it talks about church growth and evangelism. This is a general broad statistic outside of the Adventist church. This is general Christianity. Churches in the United States have entered a new season of ministry. Gone are the days when church attendance was a societal norm. For most of our American history, cultural and technological change was gradual, sufficiently paced for churches to only lag behind five to ten years. Now churches are lagging 20 to 30 years behind as the speed of change increases dramatically. To many people, the church seems irrelevant I am particularly concerned about the declining health of many churches. Now listen to this. This is pre-pandemic, folks. Between 6,000 and 10,000 churches in the United States are dying each year. That means around 100 to 200 churches will close this week. The pace will accelerate unless our congregations make some dramatic changes. I'm going to be teaching a master's class in July where I'm going to be pulling all the post-pandemic statistics. If 100 churches or 200 churches per week, and again, this is Christendom-wide, this is not just an Adventist statistic. If 100 to 200 churches are closing every week prior to the pandemic, can you imagine what that number is now? Now? The pandemic has simply exacerbated a problem that already existed. But the pandemic has also provided extraordinary opportunities. A stunning 44% of Americans polled said they are, that they see the global coronavirus pandemic and economic meltdown as a wake up call for us to turn back to faith in God as a sign of his coming judgment. So folks, we live in a secular society. Yes. And I'm going to st- say a statement and I, and, I, and I stole this statement from Sean Boonstra. Folks, we need to stop trying to convert people. Let me finish this statement. What we need to do is go and find those people that God is already converting. Does everybody understand the difference? We need to find those people that God is stirring. Let me tell you a brief story. So last week, I was at Dakota Camp Meeting. And they're at Dakota Camp Meeting. And, and and I'm always hesitant to talk about this because some people will prejudge you. So recently, I have taken up the game of golf, okay? I played football in high school. That didn't work so well for me. So I, 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 and when I say I play golf, I, I get out there and there's a little white ball and I hit it. To say I play would be an overstatement. So while I was there at camp meeting, I decided that I was going to, one afternoon, go play golf. And let me tell you what happened. To illustrate this point of just simply finding the people that God's already working with. I finished my round of golf. And as I was walking up to my car, this man who was sitting on a golf cart says, are you here from the radio station? To which I answered in a very stuttered way because some of you may know that prior to my work with the Hope Channel, I was working with Adventist World Radio. And so I said, "Um, uh, uh, no, I don't think so to which he looked at me very quizzically. And I felt kind of silly. Like, I said, why did I hesitate? So then I just said out loud, I said, I said, you know, hey, I'm sorry if I sounded real hesitant in my answer to you. I said, it's because I used to work for our church's radio station and your question just threw me off a touch. Out of his cart, he came and walked right over to me. He says, really, what's the radio station? I said, I said, well, I used to work for the worldwide Seventh-day Adventist church radio called Adventist World Radio. And then he said this to me. He said, what do you do for the church? I said, well, I said that's a bit complicated, but I'm an ordained minister. He said, well, what did you do for the radio station? I said, well, I wrote scripts and I did some training on things. And he goes, so, is your church interested in like ever having somebody come in and talking about overcoming addictions? Which was interesting because the night previous, in my sermon for the Dakota camp meeting, I had talked about the, the great pandemic in our society now is being addicted to our phones. And I said, well, that's an interesting question because I just spoke on that, but you, you know, we, our church is very focused on health and we want to help people overcome their addictions. and he, And he said to me, he said, you know, I've been sober for 16 years. And I've really felt this burden about giving back to my community. Do you think your church would be interested in me sharing my story and my testimony? And I said, you know friend, I'm not from around here. I'm visiting from Virginia. Would you be open for one of our pastors to call you up and have that conversation? Because I'm sure that there would be an interest. And at least talking to you about how that would look. He said, absolutely. And, and he, he started talking to me and he gave me his phone number. And, uh, and, and then I, I learned that he's a DJ in the local radio station in Bismarck, North Dakota. 96, I think it's 96.5 The Fox, classic rock radio. He goes by the name Bromo on on his little program. His real name is Dave. And then Dave began sharing with me his story. He encountered two women quite a number of years ago. And these two young women shared with him Scripture. And he was baptized. Very clearly, not going to church now. Struggling with what all that means. The point I'm telling you, and and I, and I don't know what the end of that story will be. I don't know what the end of that story will be. But I knew that God orchestrated that encounter. And normally I travel, with, I travel with sharing books and things of this nature and I didn't have any with me. And so I, I, I went to the ABC and thank the Lord for our ABCs. I went to the ABC and I asked them, I said, I said listen, I know that this is going to sound like a little narcissistic, but do you happen to have any of the books that I wrote? And, and they did. And so I bought one of my books and, uh, and, uh, and I wrote a little note and I sent it to this man. I've passed on his name and his number to to the local pastor in Bismarck. These are the kind of encounters that we will have when we just simply say, Lord, send us the right person today. Send us the right person today. I am willing to submit to you, Lord, whatever you want to do in my life. I am willing, Lord, please. And And the amazing thing is, is on my plane ride home, I met this man, who removes dents from cars that have been dented by hail damage. And I'm talking with him. And and this is how he phrased it. He says, that's what I do to make money. But that's not my calling in life. And now you've got my attention. He says, well, my real calling is my wife and I pastor a church in Minneapolis. Really? And he began talking to me. Sharing with me about this church that he pastors as a bivocational pastor. And I never got the opportunity to ask him for his contact information. And, and I'm trying to find that right moment to ask him for his contact information. And I just, but I, it just never worked out. But finally, we kept bumping into each other, even after we got off the plane. And finally, I was like, hey, his name's Mark. Mark, what's the name of that church you're pastoring in Minnesota? He told me the name of the church. And you can bet that I got on my phone and now I know how to get a hold of him. And I'm going to send him a book. But the point I'm making in all of this is, and by the way, and, and I would say this with Dave not sitting right there, this is why the plenary session with Dave Fiedler, I, listen, the Lord was stirring my heart on a number of the things that I'm talking about a long time ago, but David Fiedler's books, uh, De Sozo and Tactics, I'm going to invite you to get those books and read those books because they are transforming to understanding what evangelism is. Evangelism is coming into communion with God and asking God to lead you to the right people. Whether that comes, and I've gotten way ahead of myself, I'm sorry, I just, I'm very passionate about this because, folks, we are living in the last days of Earth's history. And the Adventist Church at one time in history was the head. And we are not even the tail anymore. And God's calling us back to be the head. And I'll find, I'll read a quote later this week where the pastor of the San Francisco church talks about all this church that it's doing. Finding homes for orphans, helping men find jobs, running cooking schools, running health classes. Helping people overcome addictions. Running a vegetarian restaurant. Running a health food store. And then at the end, at the end of this passage, and I'll show it to you later, the phrase is simply, and this is the beginning of the work we've got here. I said, praise the Lord. Now, the sad thing about that is every one of those institutions don't exist anymore. And my question to you is, is, when are we going to move forward in faith to do what God has called us to do? I've spent, the last, I've spent the last 10 years of my life researching church growth books as I was writing my dissertation. And here's the amazing thing. Not one of those books, not one of the books I've ever read gives an insight greater than the insight we already had when Ellen White wrote the book Ministry of Healing, particularly pages 140 to 145. It's a very simple... When we talk about evangelism, we often make it very complicated. It's very simple. Very, very simple. Get involved in the community. Understand the needs of the community. Sympathize with those needs. Minister to those needs win people's confidence, and then point them to Jesus. What would happen in Michigan if all of our churches were committed to that? And some of you I know are saying, but you don't understand, Pastor, I'm in a small church. That's okay. Praise the Lord. I had some people from North Dakota telling me, but Pastor, we only have 30 people coming to our church in Lair, North Dakota. Okay? Okay. What's the population of Lair, North Dakota? Seventy. I said, what? there's 70 people in your town and 30 of them come to your church? <laughs> Think about that now. Think about that. Most have impacted their communities as less than one-tenth of one percent. And you've got 45% of your community coming to your church. We should be coming to you to learn how to do evangelism. What would happen if every small church took on the responsibility of addressing the needs of the community? Okay. Sam Rayner wrote a book, uh, or wrote an article here in December of 2020. Sam Rayner is not an Adventist, but he has some interesting insights. Five reasons that 2021 will be harder, but better than 2020. Why will it be harder? Momentum is gone. What did the pandemic do to our churches? Our church is closed. Many of them. Stop the church in its track. Bad habits are entrenched. By the way, for those that think the pandemic did something new to the church, the pandemic did nothing new. It simply exacerbated a problem that already existed. One of the major problems, and I don't have time to unpack all of this, one of the major problems we face in the church is we have made consumers, not disciples. What do I mean by that? When we believe the church exists to fulfill and meet my individual needs, then we are simply consumers. No different than going to Walmart or Myers. We go to the church for an exchange. I pay my tithe. You bless me. I'm sorry that I'm being hard here, folks, but I'm just trying to be honest. Uncertainty remains. What's going to happen? Just read an article this morning. Just read an article this morning. I think it's in Massachusetts. I think it's in Massachusetts. Got 120 people who are vaccinated. And all of them have COVID-19. And they can't figure out. And by the way, I'm not making a political statement, so don't think I am. I'm not making a political statement at all. Uncertainty exists in the world. Do we wear a mask? Do I not wear a mask? Do I get vaccinated? Do I not get vaccinated? If I get vaccinated, should I wear a mask? Should I not wear a mask? Can I go in public? Can I shake hands? Can I bump fists? We live in a very different world. And there's a great amount of uncertainty. Church leaders are exhausted. Why are church leaders exhausted? Because they've had to discover a whole new way of doing church. There are many churches around the world that were never live streaming before. And now they're live streaming. And that takes a lot of work. And the numbers are off. What What does he mean by the numbers are off? Our attendance is way off. I can tell you the Living Hope Church now. So I work for the Hope Channel and the Senior Evangelist of the Hope Channel and I'm President Elect of the Living Hope School of Evangelism. So I do not serve as a local pastor right now. I actually serve as the head elder of my local church. Our attendance pre-pandemic was between 180 and 220. Our attendance now, and it has been kind of holding steady right around 110. People say, well, that's not too bad. Except of those 110, between 30 and 50 of them are visitors every single week. When I mean visitors, I don't necessarily mean non-Adventists. I mean people from outside churches that have not yet opened. Our numbers are way, way off. So these are all the reasons why 2021 is going to be harder. Because there's all these questions. But why is 2021 going to be better? In a crisis, it brings focus. Focus. In a crisis, it brings focus. Number two, change is accelerated. The beauty of the pandemic is the pandemic has forced us to adjust. Number three, tension produces creativity. What does that mean? If we can't do things like we've always done them, we have to get a bit creative on how we're going to accomplish things. The pandemic might make our potlucks a bit more safe. Are you following what I'm saying? Okay. Exhaustion means less self-reliance. It's a good thing. Because when we come to the point where we know we can't do everything, that's when God can do something powerful. And and, And I don't know if David has yet David, did you, did you talk about the worst evil quote already? Will you, will you be doing that today? Okay, I've been trying not to steal from David because I, David has influenced me in a very powerful way. But, 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 but Ellen White writes, the worst evil, and I'm paraphrasing, the worst evil ever brought upon the church is essentially the divorce between gospel ministers and health professionals and doctors. They were to work together. See, the challenge we face in pastoral ministry is somehow some way we think we can do everything. And God needs to bring us to a place where we can't do everything and know that we can't do everything. This is why it's a beautiful thing, and, and there are some pastors that are not going to appreciate that I've said that. this is why a three or four church district is a beautiful thing, because when you have a two-church district, both churches still think you can do everything. But when you're three or four churches, and some of you are part of three or four church districts, you know the pastor can't do everything. We need to rely on ourselves less and rely upon God fully. Number five, mission will replace and replaces preferences. In his book, The Essential Church, Tom Rainer speaks about seven sins of a dying church. I'm going to go through this very quickly. And what I'm going to do, uh, and somebody just remind me, I will give you uh, my email, and I can send you these slides for those of you that want these slides. Okay, Tom Rayner. Tom Rayner is, Tom Rayner is a Southern Baptist. He used to be the president of Lifeway Books. Why do I quote Tom Rayner often? Tom Rayner, because of the conservative nature of the Southern Baptist Convention, can identify with us not doctrinally, but can identify with us as Adventists, being more conservative. And and so when he writes about church growth, he doesn't write about all kinds of crazy stuff, to just use a word that's not very technical. And he's written a number of books, one of the most interesting books. He he wrote a book called uh, The Anatomy of a Dying Church. And the sequel to that was The Autopsy of a Dead Church. And so he has studied churches, and he identifies seven sins of a dying church. What is the first sin of a dying church? Doctrinal dilution. When we start de-emphasizing doctrine, we run into some major problems. Uh, David has been living in Canada. How long have you been living in Canada, David? Eight years. So I lived in Canada five years. David's been there eight years. Uh, in Canada, there is a church called the United Church. It's basically the merging of the Methodist Church and the Church of Christ. Over the course of the last ten years in Canada, the United Church has lost one million members. People will say, well, why is that? Well, you go start reading about the United Church and you will find that the United Church has pastors that no longer believe in the divinity of Christ. The United Church has pastors that that are atheists. And if you're a member of that church, you're left wondering, what do we stand for? And if we don't stand for anything, well, I'm better served going elsewhere. Doctrinal dilution. I'm going to skip over a few slides here. This is, yeah, I'll just skip over those. If you want these slides, I'll give them to you. Sin number two is a loss of evangelistic passion. Why do we exist? Why does our church exist? I interviewed for, to pastor a church a number of years ago in an unidentified part of the world. And I was just in the midst of doing a city-wide evangelistic series with Pastor Finley in Chicago. Thirty-four live evangelistic series all across the city of Chicago. And I was seeing God doing miraculous things over the course of the year that we had spent in preparation for that. And so when I interviewed with this church, the first substantive question asked of me was, Pastor, how do you feel about a church that doesn't want to do evangelism? It was one of those moments in life where I didn't process it and make it nice before I let it come out. And all I simply said is, I said, well, I wouldn't call it a church then. I would merely call it a social club. To which there was a gasp of the 150 people that were there at my interview. Folks, we need to re... And I'm going to be talking about this as I talk about the seven keys. This is all a precursor to the seven keys because this is all essential. But let me ask you the fundamental question. And it's a hard question for me to ask. But I will tell you, I ask this question of myself. So please know that I'm not being critical when I ask you this question. I critique myself. And here's the question. Do I really care about the lost people of my community? Do I really care about the lost people in my community? If we want to bring it closer to home, do I really care about my neighbors who may or may not be lost? Sin number three is a failure to be relevant. The word relevant has been hijacked to mean a multitude of different things and let me tell you what I mean by the word relevant. Are we speaking to a society and a culture in which we exist? Let me illustrate this point. In a more urban setting, I can do a vegan cooking class and I can call it that. Vegan cooking. Plant-based eating. I can call it all of that. But if I'm living in the inner city in a lower socioeconomic place, and I'm teaching people how to use nutritional yeast. I'm not relevant. And I'm not trying to stereotype by this, I'm just trying to be real. So, how then can I be relevant teaching health in an inner city community that is possibly lower socioeconomically and may not have access to natural foods that we might find that we want to teach about? How, am I, how do I make health relevant? Maybe I teach a class on how to feed your family for $5 a day. And I talk about rice and beans and the focus of whole foods that are accessible in that community. Does that make sense to everybody? How are we relevant? Tim Keller in his book, Center Church, for those of you who don't know Tim Keller, Tim Keller is well known as an apologist, but Tim Keller uh, started a church in Manhattan Ironically enough, he started it in an Adventist church that he was renting on Sundays. Redeemer Presbyterian, which now has several thousand members. And he asks this question, or he makes this statement: We need to figure out how we can affirm culture, but not over-affirm culture, and how do we how do we stand in conflict with or go counterculture, but yet not be so counterculture that we're irrelevant. And finding that balance can sometimes be a difficult thing. How are we relevant in our communities? Do we know what's happening in our communities? And that's another challenge we face in the Adventist church today. Many of our churches are commuter churches. People drive miles upon miles to come to our church. And we're not a part of the community. And because we're not a part of the community it's difficult to care much about that community or know about that community. And by the way, we don't need to do big demographic studies to figure out what's going on in our communities. If you want to figure out what's going on in your community, you just go out for a walk. And that'll tell you more than you need to know when it comes to evangelism and church growth. I'll talk more about that a little bit later in the week. Sin number four, we have few outwardly focused ministries. Many of our ministries are focused inward. Many of our ministries are focused on us how do we move out into the community I'm skipping over some of these things Sim number five conflict over personal preferences I don't probably need to spend a lot of time on that we become embroiled in the issue of personal preference does the flag go on the right side or the left side do we have gray carpet blue carpet do we have pews or do we have seats Number six, the priority of comfort. We have become entirely focused on how to be comfortable. When we read the Gospel Commission in Matthew chapter 28, what does the Gospel Commission say? It's not a trick question. What does it say? Go ye. Go ye therefore, what, and do what? Make disciples. Keep going. What else? Baptizing, teaching. There you go. It appears when we read the Gospel Commission that there are four imperative commands. Go, make disciples, teach, and baptize. And I I tell you, I always warn you, this is a trick question. Which one of those is the only imperative command? Okay, to the person that said go, 98% of the people that I asked that question to, that's the answer. Go. That's actually the wrong answer. The only imperative command in the Gospel Commission is, make disciples. And the rest of them, and I know it's early in the morning, the rest of them, are called subordinate participial phrases. And grammar was not my subject growing up, but let me make that simple. Make disciples is the command, going, teaching, baptizing is how we do it. But the priority of comfort has had our churches out our churches operate more in a retail position where we say Come. Come. Come to our church. Come into our church. Come. But that's not what the model says, is it? What does the model say? Go. And when we look at the ministry of Jesus, that's what happened, right? Where did Jesus go? Jesus, He went to Cana. Jesus met with Nicodemus. Jesus went to Samaria. Jesus went to the pool of Bethesda. And then the people came. Let me illustrate this very briefly. I met a man who has a restaurant. He's an Adventist man who has a restaurant in Georgia. I was at the Adventist Agricultural Conference in 2020 and that's where I met him. And I knew he was special when he did this. He began his presentation with a slide and he showed this cucumber, a beautiful cucumber, perfect. And he says, how much would you pay for this cucumber? And everybody says, oh, $1.25, how oh, wonderful. Then he put up another picture of a cucumber. It was all gnarled and ridiculous looking. And he says, how much would you pay for that cucumber? Everybody said, 10 cents, 25 cents. And then he showed another picture and it was a picture of a juice with a straw in it. He says, I just took your 25 cent cu- took your 25 cent cucumber, I juiced it and I sold it for $9.00. And I said, this is a businessman. This is a businessman. And then I began talking to him. And he didn't simply open up the doors of his restaurant, which he utilized and wanted to reach the community and say, hey, come, come on in. This is what he did. He began teaching a 10-day class, 10 days to better health. Every single month, 10 days to better health. During that 10 days to better health, which people pay for, He gives them their breakfast and he gives them their lunch. Sorry, he gives them their lunch and their dinner and they make breakfast at home. That's a part of what he does. And he goes out into the community and he utilizes this. And then what happens at the end of 10 days? Because the food is so good, when people are done with their 10 days, they say, man, I got to go to this restaurant. Because see, he goes. And in going, then the people come. By the way, he is reaching the affluent because there are affluent people that go through his program and they're seeing their cholesterol and their sugars and all this stuff become better and they just come to him and they pull him aside and they say, listen, here's the deal. (laughs) Here's the deal. My wife does not have time to cook like this. I don't have time to cook like this. So what kind of weekly program do you have that you can bring me seven days worth of meals and if you could deliver to my house, that would be really great. And so now he has all these individuals that are ordering food from his restaurant that are being transformed health wise, and then he's having conversations to, with them about their spiritual needs. You see, the, the reason I, t- I said, the reason your restaurant is successful is because you have modeled it after the gospel commission. The last sin of a dying church is biblical illiteracy, and this will lead us into our seven keys to evangelism which I will start plugging away through tomorrow. The Adventist church used to be known as the people of the book. And statistics tell us that less than 50% of Seventh-day Adventists read their Bible more than once per week. We have become a biblically illiterate generation in the church. And it has made us weak And because we are weak, we are unable to grow in tumultuous times. That's all been, so this whole presentation was identifying the problems. Okay? Wednesday through Friday, we'll identify the solutions. What do we do to both experience personal transformation and the transformation of our local church? Because friends, I believe God has given us a plan. And I believe God is going to use the church in a most powerful way in these end times. Most especially as we yield and honor Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much. We thank You so much for the opportunity to be here. And Lord, although this all looked bleak, You have a solution. And so as a group, we come to you here today, both those that are watching online and us here, sitting in the auditorium. And Lord, we yield to You 100%. Asking and praying that You would change us thoroughly and prepare us to go to all the world in the ways in which You have called us to go. And in realization of Matthew 24, 14, as the gospel, this gospel of the kingdom goes to all the world, Lord, then the end will come. Help us to be a part of that movement in these last days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.